Ah. Hi, I'm Isabeau. I'm Morgan. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. Bodice busters. Flattering dress colors. Sneaking away at a ball. Hot air balloons. Indoor plumbing. Dumb waiters. (laughs) But mostly romance novels. Definitely. And on this week, we're going to be talking about Caroline Linden's Love and Other Scandals, which is the first in a series about scandal. Beautiful cover, wherein our heroine... She's wearing a yellow dress. It looks just like Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Sure does. And there's a beautiful purple sunset in the background. Mm-hmm. And of She's course... She's leaning against a pillar. Fetchingly. Mm-hmm. And, uh... And our hero is uh, clearly about to pleasure the living daylights out of Joan. Pleasure the living daylights out of Joan. <laughs> pleasure the living daylights out of... Living daylights. Yeah, I want to start by talking about the cover because it's the reason um, you get me. You were like, which Caroline London do you want to do? And I was like, this one. Yes. And I think what drew me to it was the purple background. It is a lovely shade of purple. This is a really good cover. We see like London in the background. This one really is rooted in London mm-hmm. more so than like a lot of the other books we've read that have been set in. Anything been set in London? I don't think so. Like, they'll go to, like, balls and stuff, but then they'll, like, retire back to the country. Yeah, yeah. He looks like Gaston. Except, like, no, he really does. Anyway, it's gorgeous. By Avon Books. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal. Yeah, Caroline Linden's a huge deal. We really love her. I think one of the... Julia Quinn loves her. Everything I want in a book. It's true. It's everything that we want in a book, really. I think this is an ideal romance book. Yes, I think it really is. I think this is like when you think historical romance, think Love and Other Scandals by Carolyn Linden. Fair. Morgan, since I had you read this book, do you want to give us a brief synopsis? Yeah, and what's cool about it is because it's such a a typified romance, it's going to be pretty easy to do. Joan Bennett is our hero. Our heroine is Tristan Burke. He is a rogue. He is an orphan. That's his tragedy. Uh, She meets him because he is pals with her older brother, Douglas, who's kind of on a journey himself, trying to grow as a person. And Tristan goes to live with him because his house is under construction because his roof collapsed. We find out that he is like a terrible aunt. He is very wealthy. Joan is from a respectable background, but since he's a rogue, her mom really doesn't want her consorting with him. But her mom gets sick. Her dad has to take her to Bath. Is that right? Can you just not say Bath? We can say it both ways. So her, her dad takes her mom to Bath, and her mom's like, promise me one thing. You won't dance with Tristan Burke. You know what she does, listeners? She dances with Tristan Burke because her brother goes to Tristan and is like, hey, you dance with my sister at the ball. And that sucked, but you should do it with her more often while I'm out of town. Keep her out of trouble, okay, sport? Because Joan is tall, and Joan is unfashionably tall, and Joan doesn't get to dance at dances, and she loves to dance. And Douglas, who's being sent out of town to deal with their country estate while dad is dealing with mom's illness, is like, hey... I really do love my sis. And I know she's sad because she's been through three or four seasons at this point. Yeah, she's on the shelf, basically. Yeah. Will you please make sure that she she has a little bit a little bit of excitement? Take tea with her. Yeah. Have a tea with her. Have a dance with her. You know, whatever. The book kind of implies that she's also unfashionably hefty. I think the book says that she's she's wearing gowns that are unflattering. Yeah, like, they say they're unflattering, but they do specifically say she's 
unfashionably not petite. Right. But I think part of that is her height and like she's big boned. Like I think the book is like when she meets the dressmaker who knows how to dress her properly. Like those early Victorian she's fashions. She's got big boobs. Yeah. She's got tits. Massive tits and hips. You love saying tits. I really do. I enjoy it. She's a curvy person. She's a curvy gal. My favorite thing about her is that she, not unlike the rest of us, reads erotica. She sure does. She reads 50 Ways to Sin. Is that a real historical document? Do you know? No, that is a Caroline Linden invention, and I think it's ideal. And one of the things that I love about this series in general is that this woman, Lady Constance, the authoress of 50 Ways to Sin, uh, is... The alias of the authoress. Yeah, the alias of the authoress. Uh, she's worked through the rest of the series. Like, oh, really? The women continue to read this trashy, delicious mag that is ostensibly about the ton. And several of the books uh, work on the question of who Lady Constance is and like also like the getting of the trashy mag itself. Yeah. So it's a pamphlet. It's pretty much just... Pretty great device in uh, the book. It's an ideal device and it's like super fun and it like really brings our hero and heroine together. I love that device. I guess it's like a blind item almost where you kind of guess who it is. Yeah, totally. Except blind items are kind of sad a lot of the time. This one's not. No. (laughs) This one's fun. And it talks about everything from like a little S&M-y stuff, Mm -hmm. oral stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lady Constance is getting around. She's getting around with a guy without a hand. Yeah. And she's showing all these ladies. Like, that's one of the things that's so beautiful about, like, the friendship that uh, our heroine Joan has with these two other women called the Weston Sisters. They have to struggle really hard to get copies of this erotica. And one of the ways in which our hero then begins to lord a relationship over Joan is that as a single man, he's allowed to buy whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah. And she's like, well, Joan could have bought I mean the bookseller was prepared to sell her 50 yeah, but ways to sin snuck out. but she snuck out because she didn't want Tristan to know that she was buying it and she would like if her mom's friends caught her she'd be like scandal right and so he's like oh what's this thing that you wanted to read and she's like it's a ladies magazine about marriage uh, what else do we want to say about this what was most fascinating to you about Joan or Joan's aunt So mom and dad have to go to bath because mom is really sick with some sort of like sickening lung disease. And there's no one to take care of Joan, who's a 25-year-old on-the-shelf adult woman who isn't allowed to stay alone without a chaperone. Uh So they call in the Aunt Evangeline. Yeah, Aunt Evangeline is a scandalized widow twice over, and she's scandalized because she started a relationship Sans mariage with a world famous adventurer, Richard. She was a bit scandalous in her youth as well. For sure. Uh, one of the things that she immediately does for Joan. So, like, let's talk about the first ball. So, our hero and heroine, Tristan Burke and Joan Bennett, have met. Uh, she went to roust her brother from a drunken stupor. And uh, Tristan was living at uh, Douglas's house and she's pounding on the door at like 10 a.m., which is an unfashionably early time in London during this period. And he opens the door without a shirt and she's like, hello. She's scandalized. A little bit, but she also likes it. And he immediately terms her the fury because she goes up to her brother's room. She throws off his blankets. She like exacts a promise that he'll show up at the ball that night. That was what her mom told her to do. Right. I want to talk about Tristan's initial thoughts about her. The Fury? Yeah, because they create kind of a theme that runs through the book about clothing. Yes. 
And I have a difficult relationship with the way the book treats dressing okay. and the way um, it approaches this problem. So Tristan tells Joan that her clothes are unflattering. Yes. And Joan's like, they're very fashionable. And he's like, Gabbett, you don't look good in the fashions. You look like an opened umbrella. Yeah. Which feels like... Super mean. Super mean. But more than that, the book kind of... Joan, her like coming out of her chrysalis Mm -hmm. involves her wearing more simple dresses Mm -hmm. that are perhaps not of the fashion but are flattering to her Mm -hmm. that are made by a man Mm -hmm. instead of by a woman. Mm -hmm. It all feels very male gazy and it kind of brings up some personal issues I've had with the fact that when you look like I do, people are always telling you how to dress and it is this very difficult balance of like, show off that you've got boobs. And then it's like, but don't show off your boobs, crazy. And like in the book, there's a specific time where she's wearing her gold dress and they're like, people thought it was revealing, but it really wasn't. <laughs> it was like, and they're like celebrating her for giving up her like interest in fashion. And I don't know it's what it means that the, I, I think it is. And I think it also is a problem that the guy who her aunt makes this thing of like it's not a woman who makes the dresses it reminds me of that idea of like dior and the like new look i know we've 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 talked about the dior and, and the new Givenchy. look yeah and I think oscar de la renta i think this is different i think i'm not saying like all men who dress women do so in a way that is going to be uh considered sexually attractive to the average male. I'm not saying all male designers do that, but I think there's something there. And the fact that her aunt makes a big deal out of the fact that the man who makes her dresses isn't a dressmaker, he's a tailor. And like, I don't know, it just, it was really uh, fraught for me. But I mean, like what's special about Evangeline, right? She doesn't look like Joan's mother. She's not petite. She She looks looks like Joan. Yeah. They're tall women, big boned. They have a particular kind of unfashionable physique at the time. And like, what's funny to me about this and like your problem with it is like, I like maybe perhaps over identify with Joan as a other tall woman who's like constantly been weirded out by fashions. Like in the early 2000s, Morgan, you may be too young to remember. Um, But low-rise jeans? Yeah. Yeah. Like hideously low-rise jeans? That was a thing that well into the 2000s when it would have been pertinent for me. Indeed. And like hideously low-rise jeans looked terrible on me because like that's not the way that my body is formed. I have a really long torso. So like anything super low is just like unpardonable, like in ways that I would have been banned from school. And so, like, the idea that something that's fashionable isn't flattering is something that I'm, like, deeply... But what is flattering? It's something that fits your body well, right? But what what determines what fits your body well? I think, like, that's, like, one of those things where it's, like, fashions come in and out, like, right? We're living in a time of flash fashion where, like, things move pretty quickly, where it's, like, there are certain silhouettes that will only fit, like, will always be flattering for my body. And like other fashions, like low-rise jeans will never be flattering for my body. But like, I think about something like a really loose shift dress. Sure. That's and a really good example. it fits me mm-hmm. and I like it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people would say it's unflattering on me. Mm. I've never seen you in a shift dress. <laughs> well, no, but what I'm saying is, is like flattering is also a social construct that's predetermined by heterosexual men. Oh, I think it's also predetermined by heterosexual women or like, you know, anybody with gays. Um, I think I, I, I'll i go ahead and agree with you that it's for sure. I think she's just, 
I think it's like externalizing. Like if you know that you like fashion and you find trends interesting, mm-hmm. like why shouldn't you be allowed to wear them? It's like when people get mad at people who wear crop tops. It's like <laughs> if you like a crop top and you like wearing it, people are like, well, you shouldn't wear it. It's unflattering. Well, mm. who determined like flattering is just another cudgel that mm. people use to oppress a certain amount of self-expression. Sure. I think maybe one of the ways that Caroline Linden deals with this nuance that you're working on is that Joan doesn't particularly like these fashions. They're her mother's fashions, that they are fashionable, but Joan doesn't feel particularly drawn to them in any particular way. She just mm-hmm. wants to look fashionable and a la mode. Yeah, like, but she doesn't love ruffles. Right, exactly. She doesn't love ruffles, but I also would say she doesn't love her aunt's fashion so much as she wants to elicit a reaction and emulate something that her aunt is expressing with her clothing. Sure. Which isn't necessarily like, this is me. I like this. It's more about like, I like that this makes Tristan attracted to me. And it's constantly bringing up the fact that like, Tristan really liked my dress. Mm -hmm. Tristan said I should wear gold. Mm -hmm. It's all like... I don't know. I guess I just wish she had a little bit more autonomy because I think the dresses are such a signpost of her personal growth Mm -hmm. that I wish there was something autonomous about them. And there's absolutely nothing autonomous about them. And I I honestly, you know, I'm a tall-ish, not really, but (laughs) I have a unfashionable body type and I am constantly reading magazines that are telling me to wear the same old thing that I'm not really interested in. What do magazines tell you to wear? <laughs> like uh, a wrap dress that cinches in your waist and shows your breasts without really showing your breast, or a <laughs> fitted top and boot cut jeans was like the bane of my existence. As I sit here wearing boot cut jeans. But you know, it's like you get told what to wear more than you actually find something you like to wear personally. I mean, I love boot cut jeans. I like them better than Well, I'm not it's not really about the boot cut jeans. <laughs> no, of course not, right? Because like skinny jeans are like impossibly fashionable right now. Why like, are why are you wearing boot cut jeans? Because I like the way it makes my body look. In what way do you think it makes your body look? I feel listeners, Morgan, that as a, it evens out the way that it represents like a symmetry, right? So like my pants are slightly flared at the bottom, which is in line with the slight flare of my hips, which sure. is in line with the slight flare of my breasts, which is in line with the slight flare of my shoulders. So all of it is to say that like, I feel what bootcut jeans do for me that skinny jeans don't is they de-emphasize the flare of my hips in a way that I find flattering. Yeah. Yeah de-emphasize in a way that you find flattering. Yes. And I think that sucks that people are constantly thinking about how to compensate for the existence of their bodies, which technically should be enough for the idea of flattering, which is a construct. Oh, God, you're really bumming me out, man. I mean, I think it's great that you wear bootcut jeans and that they make you feel good. They That's do. it. But you can't just be like... Bootcut jeans make me feel good, therefore they are good for me because I don't think that's true. I think boot, the bootcut jeans are a side effect of a narrative oh, that no. is sold to women about how to fix their bodies with their clothes. And the idea that your body has something that needs to be fixed or de-emphasized is inherently problematic. Uh, I feel just like you handed me a truth bomb and it just like <laughs> exploded all over my bootcut jeans. <laughs> Uh, 
So it sounds like you had some real humdingers. With Obviously, Caroline this Linden. is like a lot of personal <laughs> shit for me, too. You know? Obviously, it's a lot of personal stuff for me, too. But it just, that kind of thinking doesn't have a positive connotation for me. I agree. And I think what you're, t- when you were talking about earlier, where you're like, I, the dresses are so important because they do represent like a kind of growth or like a maturation even. Like, because you said I wanted it to represent a kind of autonomy. And like, it clearly doesn't because of the way in which the, the dresses are being marshaled is not really about autonomy it is more about like a removal from mom and Mm -hmm. mom's fashions and like mom's tyranny Um, to the tyranny of her new husband Tristan yeah and that kind of sucks it does suck (laughs) and I wish it wasn't such an important part of the book and like I'm happy for I'm happy that she puts on a dress and she thinks like it makes her more beautiful than any other dress did that's the power and like all the things that you're talking about, right? Because I have this black dress that like I love the shit out of, right? And part of the reason why I love the shit out of it is because I like the way I feel in it. I feel powerful. I feel desired. I feel like all of the things that Cosmo said I always should feel in a little black dress. And so when I put it on, I it, it's like putting on fashionable, flattering armor, Because I am suddenly, for maybe the first time in a long time or like a first time in like all day or whatever when I put it on, I feel like girded for the world, which like sometimes is really hard, right? Like sometimes I don't feel like protected by my clothes. And I think like part of Joan's vulnerability around her fashion, why she continually throws in Tristan's face that he insulted her about looking like an opened umbrella and why he is rightly and demonstrably sad about that and like sad that he said this awful thing to her in public is because it is stingingly true, right? Like the way in which all of the things that you're talking about, how it's like flattery and like fashion and all of these things are a construct about our bodies in particular is that our bodies are constantly weaponized against us. Yeah. And I mean, even when she puts on the gold dress at the end, her outfit is still weaponized against her. And I think that's another moment that rings really true whenever her friend compliments her outfit by saying, like, it's nothing I would wear. I get that all the fucking time. I mean, Isabeau knows how I dress. You dress exactly like I think (laughs) everyone should dress. You dress comfortably. You're fashionable. You're fun. You have a real sense of uh, joie de vie. (laughs) But... I dress in a way that constantly elicits the response of rather than just like unmitigated, oh, you look great. I often don't get, oh, you look great. I get like, oh, that's so you, which is kind of a loaded thing to say. But that's what her friends say to her. For sure. They do. And she, instead of being like, but I like it, she says, even if only one person liked it and it was Tristan, (laughs) that would be enough for me. Worth it. Yeah, which feels like it comes up a little bit short. I hear that. And I think, but like maybe short, I think there's something to be said for putting on something and that you saying love. like, oh, wow, that's me. Yeah. Like recognizing yourself. Yeah. In it. But Joan only has that once. And it's when she's looking at her um, aunt's amazing uh, bonnet. Well, there's the bonnet, but also the military uh, suit coat. I don't remember that part. Oh, my God. So her aunt has this, like, walking outfit that is a long skirt and this incredible, like, jacket that is, like, striped with white and blue. And it has buttons. And she's and Joan is, like, it's more reminiscent of, like, a military suit coat. And it, like, hugs, like, you in all the right places. And she's like, I wish I had something like this because it feels like it would be me. And I think, you know, that's sort of, like, how... 
like maybe the conversation around pantsuits and Hillary Clinton began to be marshaled in a particular kind of way. Mm-hmm. And like, I agree, like it is too bad that there's not a moment of recognition in Joan's fashion of Joan mm-hmm. so much as like, this isn't me, but like this is more fashionable or like yeah. this makes me feel desirable. But Evangeline, she finds the love of her life while wearing one of those unflattering fashionable dresses. She doesn't meet her Italian tailor until after she's been in this relationship with the adventurer because it's actually his tailor. Oh, that's right. Sir Richard. And I kind of I kind of clung to that in the book. Like I, I was like, okay, well, even though Richard never gives them what they want, he gives them what he thinks, not Richard, but the tailor Mm -hmm. never gives them what they want, always gives them what he thinks would look best in them. And her aunt encourages her to just be like, accept it. I think that's like a trope though. Like, you know, like in that sense, the tailor is a structure. He's like, like the gross, like sassy gay friend where he's like, oh girl, you like need this and not that. Like la, 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 la. Like that's how that read. But I think some women would also like feel a sense of relief reading that particular narrative because the idea that someone else could make the really hard decisions for you about how to look good in your clothes yeah man like I'm not gonna disagree like (laughs) having like I cannot tell you how many times which is very rarely that I go into a store and like someone's like hey today we're offering the free services of a fashion consultant what do you think and I'm like I don't know and they're like you want it and I'm like I guess I do and yeah, they put me in clothes that like I wouldn't pick for myself, A, because of the expense, but also B, because it's like, that's not how I see myself. And maybe sometimes having like an externalized perspective that like helps you envision yourself in public yeah. can be, it is relieving, right? Where it's like, you don't have to suddenly carry the burden of your body and dressing it. Yeah. I think more than it's relieving a burden of choice or anything like Mm -hmm. that. I think you're exactly right. It's relieving the burden of your body and how it's perceived by other people. Yeah. Uh, Because you're kind of giving yourself over to a mechanic. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. And that's exactly how it feels like when I was wedding dress shopping. um, My consultant was so kind because there was this dress that I really, really wanted. And it had this incredible like Elizabethan ruffle and like these amazing pockets. And like it's sounded on paper just like what I was going for and who I think I am in terms of like dress I'm gonna put it on and it was so goddamn unflattering and like I just I wanted it so bad and he had to like he came up to me and he was like here listen it seems like you want this and you want the narrative around it like you want the pockets you want the collar you want like the drama but like that's not what your body's telling you so like let me remind you that you are a body and like let's put you into clothes that recognize your body and not the body that you think that you might be on like you know six months from now when your wedding is no but that's relying on that narrative of flattering totally but like mm, he put me in a much more flattering dress (laughs) that construction of flattering yeah I agree it's hard it's hard to snap or break or maneuver out of hey do you know what this isn't what this is not a half bad reading of Foucault (laughs) Morgan, everybody. Smart, hilarious, fashionable. (laughs) I just, I don't know. I think I over-identified with her as well, and I think that's why it hurt me so much. (laughs) I'm sorry. I like, you know, it's... Like, you know, I'm probably defending this more than I should, but like, you know, I want to be honest. This is one of the romance novels that I've returned to over the years. Like, I've read this one several times. And it's great fun to read. It's got excellent sex scenes. I love the hero. Tristan. Yeah. I do too. 
I, I think love she his does, damage. She loves, she makes, um, I would say Caroline Linden does a really great job of making a damaged hero that doesn't feel over the top. Yeah. And also like the way he creates a sense of mystery seems genuine rather than contrived mm-hmm. in his kind of directness that's ungainly for mm-hmm. the era. Yeah, I agree. For all of those reasons, I find Tristan and Joan both like the fact that he goes from calling her fury to delectable, I think is really nice and like a very much like much ado about nothing type way. And I just... I he's delectable like the things that he says about her are great and the way that like his construction of her is great the way he interacts with others is really great I love his interaction with the brother I love his interaction with her dad at the end Um, with her aunt with her aunt like he's just imminently likable I love that moment when he challenges her to learn how to box and you can tell that it's not like any kind of like toughness or a sense of adventure or whimsy it's just he like does not know what to do with himself yeah he like absolutely like, does not know how to talk to women but it's still like charming and, totally and masculine and yeah you know i think he is such a great example of the kind of interiority that you really want yes. in a romantic hero i agree almost exclusively all of his interiority and the way in which he grows or changes uh-huh. is so pleasurable like legit like dark chocolate covered strawberry pleasurable like watching him transform from I have to think about the way in which I like I have a witty acerbic comeback yeah oh suddenly my witty acerbic comebacks have consequences that I don't like I suddenly have to think about the way in which I say things or the way in which I deal with people or the way in which I'm like you know maneuvering myself in the world like his growth feels so organic and the fact Uh that we have such a front row seat to it is so goddamn pleasurable it's really nice and I would say like as much as I struggled with the way that Joan thought of herself. Mm-hmm. I really relished in the way he thought of Joan. Oh, yeah. We talked about what is the function of the male perspective in romance novels and you made the really great point of it's a way for women to imagine an interiority of the people around them. Like that's exactly like everything he said would be exactly what you would want someone to think about you. Yeah. I 100% agree. And I think that more than Joan herself was what was so compelling about the book. I agree. Like Joan really loses her compellingness in moments that I find really weird. Like the way in which she like disappears inside of herself because she is, she, especially in the first half of the book, she represents like this kind of fiery, you know, Beatrice type character where she like speaks her mind, but like she's okay with being on the shelf. Totally. accepted it. Because her father loves her. Her mother loves her. She has (laughs) friends. She has, you know, her outlet of 50 ways to sin like her life is really circumspect and she doesn't like that part of it and like she's she's actually kind of ready to be officially on the shelf where people will stop bothering her yeah um but like as Tristan's interest in her ramps up that part of Joan begins to like disintegrate a bit and she becomes more of this like quotish unsure creature except when it comes to her sexual body yeah and that's just a little bit Yeah, I think you really said it best, like someone who is defined by their parents, suddenly defined by their husband, which kind of sucks because it's like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) totally. It does suck. And like, it's okay. It's a balm that her husband thinks of her in such an intriguing way and is such a likable 
Right. And like, we know that he's not going to like hurt her or like constrain her or whatever because we like love and trust him at this point. Yeah. I was kind of saddened by my own willingness to believe someone's a hunk based on the fact that they're tall. Like, he also has like amazing sparkling eyes. My my friends who are on Tinder, people like put their height in their description Mm -hmm. of themselves. And I'm like, that's stupid. And then I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) I read in a romance novel that a guy's tall or has a large penis. Mm. I love, like, this might sound super weird, but like, there's that scene on their wedding day when um, he comes at her like totally naked and like the erection is bobbing at her. (laughs) And like, part of me is like, that's so silly. Also, like, that is like such a funny thing that like happens to male bodies. And, but also like it was written in the sexiest goddamn way possible where like an erection bobbing is usually not inherently sexy. Not to be a Debbie Downer, although it's my natural state. (laughs) Do you think, do you think men feel as embarrassed and self-conscious of the fact that their erection bobs as women do about every other part of their physical form? The patriarchy would tell me no. (laughs) All signs are pointing to no. I'm sure there there are men out there who'd be like, yeah, of course we do. It's like, you don't know. <laughs> I agree with you. I think like, but like you said it in like one of our, it was the episode about priests where you're like, you, like you can't have a sense of irony in a sex scene. Yeah. I'm like, I think maybe <laughs> men have been schooled not to see penises bobbing as like, a I, thing. yeah, it was like, this is how bodies work. Like they really, here's the thing. Dudes think penises are funny if they can like helicopter <laughs> And like back and forth. It's like, no, dude, your penis is funny when it's erect. Your it's penis not is always just kind of funny. It's always funny. <laughs> this is this is gonna get us death threats on Twitter. <laughs> but it's true. Male sex organs are always funny. Okay, right. One of my favorite YouTube comments of all time was on an Ellen video. Great. And Ellen from her TV show, and Ellen made a joke about how she finds penis penis is distasteful which is funny because she's a lesbian right. but also they kind of are <laughs> and they're, they're so the needy comment, the second comment things. on the video was like i'm so tired of women acting like there's their like penises are funny like their spaghetti huts are so great <laughs> spaghetti huts <laughs> That's and it's like true, man. We go around sh- showing off our spaghetti huts to the world, demanding gold star stickers be placed on our spaghetti huts. It's like a man who says the boobs are like bags of sand. And it's like spaghetti huts. Maybe he was joking. But I love the idea that he's so mad and so worked up and doesn't know the word vulva. Well, like he's just. Oh, hot spread spaghetti, spaghetti huts. Or that like women's labias are like spaghetti in some way. <laughs> Clearly they're like a cannoli. My like God. A, like a lasagna noodle maybe. Yeah, like not spaghetti. Anyway. But also this idea that like women are like constantly reveling in our... Our tacos. In our taco huts. <laughs> a taco on every corner. Well, yeah, like the idea that we like feel so great about that part of us. Right. And we have no business making fun of men for their penises right which is why like i think in that moment like caroline linden does something like kind of astoundingly great where it's like it is inherently hilarious to watch a man walk towards you totally naked with an erect penis it's just funny and then like that it's not that it has like this 
like scintillating I don't know like she writes it in a way that it feels both tantalizing fun and imminently relatable and like not intimidating no not threatening at all like there's like there's something about it bobbing yeah It's like we're friends here. It really relieves the tension. Right. I love that. I think it's just so and like that sex scene is really good. She like she like really she doesn't shy away from talking about penises. Right. Or like body parts in general. Like the the way in which all of the sex scenes are happening feel not only super organic, but also like visceral in a way that's not sensational, but like sensorial. Sensorial. That's nice. I, I I mean, I think they're stupendous. I think it's even great whenever she's reading 50 Ways, 50 Ways to, to sin. sin and starts to understand it as something other than gossipy or shocking. Totally. I also love that like and she starts touching her own nipples. Yeah. Then like imagining it and that her friends work so hard to like procure these copies. And then you find out that like their mothers are reading it. And like yeah. the way in which like all of these women are keeping the secret from each other and like the way in which like then sex is it's very meta for a romance novel. Totally. But like the way in which like sex is prohibited from a 25 year old adult woman is like wild to think about. Wild. It's just insane. But I think about the ways in which like, you know, sexuality, especially a woman's sexuality is like curtailed or prohibited or like made to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. And like the way in which like Tristan really revels in Joan's awakening, like yeah. and thinks about it actively and like wants to make sure it's pleasurable for her. And like there's this moment where she's trying to ask him if he loves her because they have their first sexual um encounter encounter Mm -hmm. is at this ball and like they have like crazy amazing sex on this duvet couch or divan or whatever and duvet is a thing that goes over your comfort that's right I cleaned mine the other day (laughs) which is why it's on my mind it's so good I love clean sheets anyway um and so they do it at this ball and like their their absence is remarked on right that they're absent together is remarked on and he doesn't propose marriage and he's just she's I don't like surrender or yield she's like she, she's not a virgin anymore and like she, she gives him i don't like give either like in a sense it's like now she is fallen i hate all i of think this. i'm just workshopping a lot of great ideas here you are he, so she smart. she allows him to ruin her oh. go on they have consensual sex and pops the button on the jelly jar Yes, they have consensual sex. And the, 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 the thing that Caroline Linden is like really clear about is that the, the responsibility and all of the consequences are like laid at Joan's door. And like those consequences happen immediately. Her parents show back up. They're like, you need to get married to this dude. Like you've mm, yeah. been ruined, as Morgan just said. And like all of that Fallen. sucks. And he proposes because he has to, because he's being brought up to scratch, as we've talked about. And so she's left in doubt of whether or not he really loves her and so they get married and they have sex and she's like screwing up her courage to be like do you think you could ever really come to love me I know that you've been forced into this marriage because we had feelings for each other that physically animated at this ball and there's this moment where you know she's like screwing up her courage to ask this question and he's like well did you marry me today because you wanted to and she's like yes and he's like well because your parents forced you and she's like no 
And he's like, because we're good in bed together. And she's like, well, you'd be lying if I said that that wasn't the case. Yeah. And she's like, obviously people can have sexual things together that are like good. And he's like, I want you to know that what we have together is like basically once in a lifetime. And like, this doesn't come around all that often. And like in that moment, I was like, Tristan, you, you (laughs) saucy rogue. Hey, Womance listeners, Isabeau here. And if you love Womance and you love what we do, would you do me a huge favor and click subscribe on your favorite podcasting app? And if you have just that extra second, would you go ahead and give us a rating as well? Ratings and subscriptions help keep this podcast going, lets other people know where we are, lets other people in on the delicious secret that is Womance and Romance in general. And more than that, don't keep us a secret. Tell your friends, tell your mom, tell her about the juicy bits, but, you know, let her discover the details. Because romance and womance is all about discovery. Thanks for listening. We look forward to seeing you. Do you know, I mean, it pays off in the end, but I was thinking about in the ethical slut, what Mm -hmm. she has to say about romance. Mm Mm-hmm. And she says people think romance is a feeling, but it's not a feeling. It's a narrative. Mm -hmm. And I think the book does a really great job of pointing out that Joan becomes beholden to this narrative. Mm -hmm. And uh, it doesn't always work out that way, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work out. Totally. And I think that's really, really clever of Caroline Linden, where it's like, yeah, it's very clever. This book is very meta. Totally. It's so aware of itself. Yeah. But like in a way that's like, so fun. It's like you're having a conversation with Caroline Linden through the characters of Tristan and Joan. Yeah. And I fucking love that. What was your favorite sex scene? Um, the one at the ball. Oh, hold on. Love scene. Because you know I rarely pick actual <laughs> scenes. Totally fine. The one at the ball, I think, is the one that like really did it for me. That's that's a dog-eared page for Isabeau. Oh, yeah. Whenever she is uh, torn asunder. <sighs> first of all they don't phrase it that way she's like there was a burning sensation and then she calls his name and then he's like I understand and then he begins flicking her bean oh do you know what I just remembered how Freudian the sex scene is in the ball like what do you mean he's always like suckling at her nipple and she holds his head at her breast and then whenever he's, he's on his knees and then but she doesn't have to hold his head there Where and then hold her on hands? whatever they whenever he's entering her for the first time and he like puts the head of his penis at her opening mm-hmm. and then he says push mm-hmm. and she like bears down on his penis mm-hmm. And then he says, push. Mm-hmm. And she goes down a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Did that not remind you of like a reverse birth? No. Let's read it. Oh, God. <laughs> because she's on. Okay, listeners. She's on the couch. Like he's put it there for her comfort. He is on his <laughs> knees because like that's a way in which he can enter her where like they like she has as much control as he does over how it's happening and they can go slow. And it's like it's like really nice really sexy those pillows sound really like nice and like the divan or like what is what's a fancy old word for couch 
I'm like, I, important to me is making you feel weird about this. I don't know why you want to ruin this for me. Why are you yucking my yums? Christ. And like the way he like pulls down her dress to like suckle at her nipples and he calls them like ripe raspberries, which BT dubs, my favorite fruit is raspberries listeners. So I'm like deep into that. Flambois. Flambois. Mm. You should probably get some Burt's Bees nipple cream for that. It's a product for nursing mothers. Does it come in raspberry? I'm not pregnant. If you're, I, that sound was me throwing the microphone. <laughs> I, don't understand, I don't understand why that was a mic drop because I am neither if you have pregnant. Chappy, you got chappy nipples. I wish I had chappy nursing, nipples from Tristan being all up boyfriend. on them. If Tristan was my boyfriend, I'd be really happy. Ugh, I've really got to find the sex scene. Because I don't think I'm crazy. What's your favorite sex scene while you're looking for it? Or love scene? My favorite love scene is in the hot air balloon, which I was like so peeved when I found out they were going in a hot air balloon because I grew up watching The Bachelor. Oh my God, can we go talk about that? Because like that feels like a scene from The Bachelor. It feels like a scene from The Bachelor. And like the thing that's always driven me the craziest about the consistency of the hot air balloon date on The Bachelor is that there's no way it's romantic. It's super loud. You're in this tiny basket. It's you, your date. And a stranger. Hot air balloon operator who you act like you can't see and the cameraman with this enormous camera and you're all just... (laughs) And I'm supposed to believe it's like as you squint off into the horizon, it's because you love each other. Meanwhile, there's an old man in a baseball cap like gunning up the gas. (laughs) (laughs) Like it seems so unromantic, but reading about it in this book, I was like, oh, because she's like... Scared. pressed against the, she's like back to his chest she's yeah. pressed against him because she's scared yeah. but then she's also got this sense of adventure and this sense of growth yeah. and also this sense of sharing something you're excited about because yeah. he's super nerdy about that shit that's like that's like secret thing about Tristan that I super love is that he's a mega nerd like he love he's like sponsoring the balloonist he's super into the intricacies of like how it works he's super into the idea that it's not hydrogen that it's whatever it is um, so it's less flammable and likely to like blow up. He's also like he builds a cold dumb waiter inside of his new house so that his servants don't have to haul it up and like stay in the stairs. And he's like super into all of these like modern amenities. He like builds all of the pipes into his floors so that his feet don't get cold when he gets out of the bath. Like Tristan's like a mega nerd. Okay, listen, oh, I found You're it. You're so mean. So first of all, she clutched his head to her breast. Don't tell me you've never done that. Panting, he took himself once more in his hand before setting the blunt knob against her throbbing opening where his fingers had just been. Push, he rasped. She arched her back a little, letting Sexy. her weight slip toward him. Because she's on a couch. At the same moment, he pushed forward and slipped inside her, stretching her. He met her gaze as if seeking reassurance. He doesn't Again, want to hurt her. he said in the same dark velvet tone. Mm, Joan it. pressed out at the same moment he bore forward. The pressure between her legs grew keener, less pleasurable. Tristan, she said, <laughs> certainly. I know. He laid his hand on her belly. You read the next part. You can't just leave it there. <laughs> I'm sorry, I lost it. You read the next part okay but we cannot deny that that part is in this read the next part 
He laid his hand on her belly and thumbed aside the curls covering the place where his body met hers. Love. And then he watches himself uh, slowly enter her as she continues to uh, push. Bear down. She. He gets her some ice chips. <laughs> You're such an asshole. <laughs> Doesn't it? I think I thought it sounded super childbirthy. No, it's just like you like that's sometimes that's how sex is. <laughs> address the question, Isabel. Does it or does it not sound like childbirth? And if you say no, everyone in the world will know you're a lying liar. <laughs> No comment. <laughs> I don't know. I take the fifth. <laughs> I refuse to incriminate myself. God, we're all just little Freudy babies, including Caroline Linden. Caroline Linden. I thought this scene was sexy as hell. <laughs> I also love that she's wearing a gold dress like Belle. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so I have already announced uh, the weirdest parts to me. That was... Her relationship with the clothing mm-hmm. and the fact that her husband makes her reverse birth his penis. Her future husband makes We're him so reverse mean. birth her penis. Do you have to say it that way? God. <laughs> what was the weirdest part for you? I can tell you the part that I found most alienating, but maybe not even uh, weird. Okay, that counts. Aliens are weird from outer space. For sure. But like also have sex with people all the time, apparently in Nebraska or Kansas. <laughs> It's because no one would touch anyone from Missouri. (laughs) Burn. Also true. Um, I think the thing that I found really alienating was the relationship of the mother in general. And like the mother to all of the characters was really weird. Like, so we're given this. Oh, I'm so glad we're talking about the mother relationship. Yeah. And like the mother to everyone, like she's like super controlling of both of her children, Douglas and Joan, but in really different and profound ways that I found strange and alienating, but also just like the narrative of the mom's romance to the dad but it's clear that they really love each other and like I don't doubt that but the idea that like the dad was this rogue and this roué and like he changed himself to be attractive to this petite heiress I don't know like that felt pat in a way that I didn't like but also like the way in which like a woman's power is like really centered in this particularly kind of like nervous frittery gossipy and also mean woman like part of the thing about Evangeline coming into Joan's life is that she has been defamilied from this family for a really long time because of the scandal mm-hmm. of her second marriage. Mm-hmm. And like the, the the mom was the one who said, you can't be around my kids. Like Joan hasn't seen her aunt Evangeline since she was eight and yeah. she's 25 when we meet her. Yeah. And so like the idea that this mother who I'm supposed to feel bad because she has some like sort of lung disease, like, and that her father really does love her, but she's like tyrannical. And the way in which her tyrancy is like portrayed through both of her children is clearly damaging but like I'm also supposed to like and understand her and I like I don't. Is it damaging? In what way is it damaging? Like it's clearly damaging for Joan. Like Joan's sense of like ability to recognize herself in fashions like her only real rebellion against her mother is dancing with Tristan and reading 50 Ways to Sin. In every other way she like conforms in terms of her hair she has a really hard time finding out who she is she like constantly does her mother's bidding. She's like legit concerned about her mother's opinion of her in a way that I find tyrannical. I interpreted Joan's 
relationship with fashion as a sense of self-discovery. And if your mom is a certain way and looks a certain way, like she's not going to understand how to push you in a different direction. I think her mom's intentions are always really good. Yeah. I think sending Douglas away, I think they let Douglas explore parts of himself and then send him away to give him some sense of responsibility. But the mom doesn't do that. The dad does that. But I mean, they do it. And I, you know, I, I kind of understood, you know, Douglas and Joan are constantly telling Tristan, like, so that I'm scared of my mom I think it really speaks to clearly to a difficult relationship Mm -hmm. like even the best relationships with parents are tricky Mm -hmm. are complicated if not tricky even if they're easy they're complicated yeah and so I didn't really understand her mom as a tyrant I understood her as a woman doing what she thought was best doing the best she could Mm -hmm. she seemed to really enjoy her children her Mm -hmm. children you know they complained about her but Tristan as Mm -hmm. an orphan who had a really negative Mm -hmm. experience being raised by his aunt was like oh yeah she sounds terrible and they're like no she's not terrible right they're always she's really my quick, mom yeah they're quick to qualify and I think the reason why I would I wanted to label it tyrannical which is definitely the word that Tristan uses and not the word that Douglas or Joan use right is because of her reaction when they come back like right after the ball and yeah, she's worried her daughter has ruined herself has has ruined her standing in society she can't even comfortably be a wallflower now right and the thing that the mom says is that you look like a loose woman. And she says it and then she immediately goes to bed and then dad has to do the repair. He's like, you don't look like a loose woman. You look sophisticated. And I don't think your mom was prepared for that. And like, yeah. I think the dad I think is... that's really true though. I, I think, think so too. I think like, but in so many ways, like the mom, like her illness and like her tyrant tendencies, I think you're right. It is complicated, but I also think like in so many ways it felt easy and like she felt like a real Mrs. Bennett in terms of like a pride and prejudice Mrs. Bennett and Mr. Bennett felt like a real Mr. Bennett in terms of a pride and prejudice Mr. Bennett. I mean, I just, I thought, uh, thought it was pretty, I didn't, I didn't dislike her mom. Oof. I had a real high time with mom when she said that. And I didn't side with her dad. I kind of understood where her mom was coming from. And I think, you know, it helps to have her father articulate it more clearly and more generously. Mm-hmm. And the mom comes back and says, yes, that's true. Yeah. I just she wasn't does the next day. Saying. You know, sometimes moms say bad things. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, she doesn't always say the right thing, mm-hmm. but she's always saying it for the right reasons. Yeah. And I think the way in which she's tied to society in a way that like precludes her from being like gentle or generous with Evangeline yeah. until the very end. Yeah. Like Joan is depicted as a more generous like human being with less of a care of society mm-hmm. because she's at society's outer edges and her mother was maybe a social butterfly. So like we're dealing with like a dance mom and not a dance daughter. I think her mom is comfortable with her daughter not getting married. I think she's okay with Joan being on the shelf. I never got the impression that she was in a big hurry to marry Joan off. I think it's because like Joan wasn't getting married and like at 25 like what are her at? But know, like avenues. the Weston sisters their mom was like you gotta go and dance. You've got like your brother's gonna go round up some dancers to dance with you. The We've got to figure this out. Bigger dowries than Joan, Joan. That's fair but I never got the feeling from Joan's mom that she was unhappy with Joan's happiness or whatever interpretation of happiness Joan was seeking out unless it was something that was going to be detrimental to a comfortable future for her daughter. Yeah, I think that's fair. 
I also want to talk about how this book deals with the problem of modernity because I think her relationship to Evangeline is really indicative of this. Like her mom felt like a relationship with Evangeline would be detrimental to her children. Totes. But then we start to see, you know, the world is changing. Perceptions of women like Evangeline are changing and they always, and the father and the aunt consistently make the point that, you know, people are scandalized by her gold dress. They mm-hmm. say she might as well be wearing a chemise because it doesn't have ruffles on it. And then they point out that 10, 20 years ago, they would have been wearing chemises. chemises. Yeah, which is one of my favorite moments in fashion history Me is when too. people had their boobies out. All the time. Like, that's like, that's how you wear a free citizen. Thanks, or in France. Paris, they would like get their dresses wet before they put them on so yeah. that they would like hang off their bodies. I mean, it's like we were talking about before. There's this really singular narrative of culture that I think is fostered by PBS that really cleans things up, you know? Yeah, it really does. I like super can't argue with that. I have a lot of problems with PBS recently. Um, <laughs> but did they not send you the tote? Did they say they would send you the tote and then they? That isn't what they did. They like rewrote the Irish famine and Young Victoria in a way that I was like profoundly uncomfortable with. Really? What did they do? They fucking made it seem like Queen Victoria cared about the Irish at all. And like, not only does she care about the Irish, and like, there's an entire episode about the Irish famine, and she's like, "What about the Irish?" What about the Irish? And I'm like, Victoria never, ever said that. Hey, she was the queen. If she was that worried about the Irish, she probably could have done something about right? it. Right. So then she goes to the prime minister, Mr. Peel, and says, hey, Mr. Prime Minister, I'm a mother. There are starving mothers in Ireland. Do something. And like, there's this scene where she delivers this monologue and she's holding her third baby and she's weeping. And I'm like, Queen Victoria never did that. She hated the Irish and she wanted them to die. This never happened. PBS, I hate you for painting her this way. It's not true. Please stop. Who is this for? I was so mad. Well, I think as certain people in your life have recently demonstrated, the English have a very different view of their history of colonization that is pervasive to this very day. I hate it so much. It feels so dumb. It's also welcome to my life. It's like so easy to like countermand is the thing where it's like so fucking clear from her journals, from her letters, from everything about Victoria that she was like, oh, Irish people are dying maybe that's for the best (laughs) I'm like we can and like that would have made the show so much more interesting Victoria is not imminently likable Victoria is complicated she's like a woman in power but also like under power the ways in which that story could have been told for the actual historical atrocity and genocide that it was genocide which is what I just said. Yeah, I was just agreeing. I was just saying. Okay. I don't know why I thought that was like, I'll do like a cool echo thing. (laughs) I like underline. Genocide. Irish genocide. Like why it was that we had to like cookie cutter that moment with Victoria felt like so unethical. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm an intelligent woman. I've fucking had history classes. Like, PBS didn't do that. BBC did that. Yeah, well, fuck you, BBC. Who the fuck is this Finally, for? Finally, someone's saying it. BBC, you haven't ever sent me a tote bag. Fuck you, BBC. Although I really did like Sherlock. Whoa, that's a whole other thing. Benedict Cumberbatch is the otter of my dreams. Your fave is problematic. Everyone. Said, otter of my dreams. <laughs> Otter. I just want to give him a little pumpkin around <laughs> Halloween time and just watch him scramble all over it in the water like a beach ball. 
That's all I want. Anyway, I was really mad about it. And I thought it was like so unnecessary because like you can have unlikable heroines or you can have likable heroines, which Victoria and young Victoria really but is. If you're doing a historical character, like you're more, you're beholden to things more important than likability. Yeah. But also like it can be complicated. Nobody yeah, has exactly. to be likable all the time. Yeah, exactly. It's not that it can be. It's that it is. Right. And so to pretend that it's not is just like fucking lazy and also really fucking dangerous is the thing. And I don't think it's lazy. I think it's actually malicious. Yeah, I mean it is. Like like whether or not it was intended to be malicious, it is malicious. It is. And I think it is malicious in a way that they are dehumanizing an entire island. Island. Yeah. I didn't know they did that. Well, I've only seen season one. Season two is super problematic. Like we can get into it even more, but like that was the most problematic episode. <laughs> I can't wait till they get to like the late Victorian reign. Yeah, that's super fun after Albert dies and all she does is wear black. Woo. <laughs> and gets a bunch of like like a Scotsman. Mm. Mr. Brown. Anyway, I love this book. I think you've brought up some really interesting uh things to think about in terms of Joan. Yeah. Um, I think we've done a lot of really interesting discussion about the way this <laughs> book is a meta text. But I would say it's a woman. Total romance. Because I mean, this is it. This is this is what you uh, this is what you look for. Yeah, it's like an ideal, and in the same way that I feel about a week to be wicked is the same way that I feel about uh, love and other scandals. I like a week to be wicked better. That's cool. Which one do you like better? Oh, I don't know that I like either one. Better. Which one do you like better? I like Tristan better than I like. Which one do you like better? Which Colin book do you like better? And I like Min better than I like Joe. Which book do you like better? I like them the same. Which book do you like better? I masturbate to both of them. Which book do you like better? I can hold pick two. Pick one. I can hold two pick things one. at once. Pick one. I they pick one. No, pick one. They're queens of my heart. Pick one. I cannot. But you can. For this Isabeau, in this moment, you like one better than the other. I don't. I like them equally for different reasons. <laughs> We're different people. Yes, that's true. Why don't we leave it up to our listeners? If you want to find us on Twitter, Woman's Gmail. Tumblr, Instagram. Tell us what you like better. Yeah, which do you like better? We're gonna we we're trying to do more show notes on Tumblr as well. Yeah. So you let us know what you think because Isabel can't pick, and Morgan clearly has. Here's here's, here's our ASMR moment for the day. <laughs> this is a package of Sour Patch Kids. Reverse birth. What are you doing? It's ASMR. You'll get it once you watch the playlist I'm going to send you. I don't want to. <laughs> it seems weird. It seems so weird. Um, last thoughts? Last thoughts. Would you be interested in reading the series? Uh, I don't know. I th- you know, the thing about reading romance novels is they never do the series with the characters that I want them to do the series with. Who do you want to see in the series? Because there's a novella about her brother, Douglas. Then they're the Weston sisters. Each of them have a book. The second sister's book is better than the first sister's. Olivia, who was the chaperone, also has her own book. I guess I'd be interested in Olivia's. Her book is fascinating. I don't know. There's not, I mean, I really like the one. I would read other Caroline Linden books, but I wouldn't necessarily be like, I want to live in this world. That's fine. Caroline Linden just released a book this month. Maybe we should talk to her about it. About what? Her new book. Well, next week, we're going to talk about the grandfather of gothic gay romance. Yes. Gay wick. <laughs> By Vince Varga. Can you believe it? 
I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to get a like a really meaty red, like a real dark red. We're going to darken the room. We're going to light some candles. Pull I think shades. we should really, yeah, I think we should really set the mood for this one. I agree. With that being said, I think Caroline Linden is. A great romance novelist. Uh, she's yes. a lot of fun to follow on Twitter. Yes. And I love this book, and I love this cover, and I love this series. Scandal. Scandal. Much better series than a TV show. <laughs> I love Whoa. you, Shonda Rhimes. Oh, my God. Cut. Cut the sound. She just... Uh, uh, uh. Hey, folks. It's Morgan. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Our logo is by Mary Reichman, and our original music and editing is by Nick Gravelin. They're the best. Feeling woeful about waiting a whole week for more Womance? Well, chin up, buttercup. You can creep or connect with us anytime on Twitter. We're at woe underscore mance or Instagram, womance, all one word. You can also find us on Tumblr at womance.tumblr.com. If you prefer to be more direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com. Can't wait to hear from you. And don't forget to tune in next week.